Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho and co-host Tobias Wright. All right, tonight, we go inside the huddle with soprano Rachel Willis Sorensen live via phone, a winner of the Operalia competition, the Belvedere singing competition, and the Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions. Rachel has been an ensemble member at the Zemper Oper in Dresden. She sang at the Glyndebourne Festival last spring, and tonight, we talk about how opera became the medium in which she found her voice. And then in Chalk Talk, conductor Sir Simon Rattle's recent article for the BBC website outlines seven essential pieces of advice for young musicians. Find out how many of those we've followed over the years. Plus, in the two-minute drill, we break down the beginning of the Yannick Nézé Seguin era at the Met, and we give you our hot takes on everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. And, of course, you can call us on the air. Get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your opinion on what we're talking about tonight. 847-866-9687. You can also tweet us at Opera Box Score. Got a really great show for you tonight. I'm excited that uh, Oliver Camacho is back. For those of you listening live, we want you to stay on the line, uh, on the radio, to, to listen to Rachel Willis-Ornson. But until midnight, Jonas Kaufman singing Otello with Gerald Finley as Iago was streaming from the Bayerische Stolz Opera um, website. And it was available until midnight on Tuesday, or till 11, if, maybe it's tomorrow. I don't know, but if you're near a computer, go to operalive.de. Toby, how are you? It's been a long time since I've teen, seen Tobias, actually. The last time I saw Toby, the Bears under 500, Chiefs were undefeated. That was then. This is now. We were merely freshmen, George, in those early season moments. The Chiefs are still incredible. Patrick Mahomes is going to win the MVP. It's the greatest sporting thing that I've ever watched happen in my sporting life. Is that fair? Those are big words, sir. Big words, tiny human. Okay. Let's talk so here's here, before opera. we talk, here it is. Until Tuesday, December 4th at 11:59 a.m. CET. I imagine that is some time zone in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> so until noon East, noon on yeah. Tuesday in Germany, you can watch Jonas Kaufmann singing Otello for free. For free. It's a good plug. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. American soprano Rachel Willis Sorensen won the 2014 Operalia Competition, the 2011 Hans Gabor Belvedere Singing Competition, and the 2010 Metropolitan Opera National Council Auditions. She's an alumna of the Houston Grand Opera Studio and a former ensemble member of the Zemper Oper in Dresden, where she sang Mozart heroines and villains such as Fiordeligi, Vitellia, and Elettra. Her repertoire now includes The Marshallin, Elsa, The Countess, Donna Anna, and Leonora in Il Trovatore. During her run of Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier at the Glyndebourne Festival last spring, Rachel was invited to perform for Prince Charles's 70th birthday celebration at Buckingham Palace, and now she has the supreme honor of being our interview <laughs> guest. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, a video of you singing Donna Anna's aria or Seiki Lonore from Mozart's Don Giovanni has been watched over 100,000 times on Facebook. This is one of the hardest Mozart roles in the rep. How has your portrayal of Donna Anna evolved, and 
Side note from Oliver, who gave you permission to interpolate a high D in what is already a throat-busting phrase? <laughs> well, my interpretation has changed drastically since the first time I did it. It was a very traditional production originally I did in college, and then I visited it again in Houston at the Houston Grand Opera, and then I sang it in Dresden, and then I sang it in Vienna, and, um, oh man, so many times. I think that this one I did this summer at the Royal Opera House was maybe the seventh visit to the role, and it was the first time that the show was turned so on its head that my role, I, I was completely complicit in the relationship with Don Giovanni at the beginning and wanting to have an affair with him the whole time. It's such a different way of interpreting the character. But actually, I, I thought that I would struggle with it, but I think it gave me more power in the character, and I think that's important. It's funny, it's hard to go against type, you know, and maybe I come across, I don't know, domineering or something. <laughs> so the production was better for me because I got to be kind of in control, and it made sense why it isn't working out very much with Don Savio. But yeah, my interpretation has changed drastically. I'm excited to see what I can do with it at the Met um, in January. But seriously, um, this is Oliver. Hello again. Hi, Oliver. <laughs> um, so you, I, ha- I was having George play up, uh, cue up this clip. I don't know what happened to it, but um, you do this ornament to a high D. Well, let's let's listen to it. I got so excited <laughs> that I completely forgot. Can we listen to it? Is this, yeah, is let's, cool? to let's it. take let's a listen. listen. Tell us what we're listening yeah. to, Oliver. This is Orsai Kilonore, as you said earlier. Uh, this well, is he one, almost said it. Yeah, this is one of the hardest arias ever written. It's really short. It has a really long accompagnato, but then you get the aria, and it's just 90 seconds of, like, balls to the wall singing with uh this oh my gosh it has to be longer than that, <laughs> longer than that. really no it's it's, it's probably seconds? like maybe it's two minutes or something like that but um it's like 20 minutes it's so hard <laughs> but it, it has this phrase that keeps repeating which just asks the soprano to sing forte or fortissimo on, on an a which is you know a note that's in a lot of sopranos registers but somehow the way this is written it feels like the hardest a <laughs> and you have it's to a, sing it it's a punisher yeah so yeah. Let, let's hear just a little bit of the end of this aria So that was uh, from a live performance at the Royal Opera House this summer. And for those people who have, you know, seen Don Giovanni, you know that the soprano is really struggling. And it's sometimes you're like on the edge of your seat, like, oh, just please get through it. You know, we want you, we want you to do well. And, Make it, baby. Yeah. And, but you sang that with such authority and such confidence. It really did remind me of like Joan Sutherland singing it. And I'm sure oh, you've, you've you. had this comparison That's before. Perfect. So. I haven't really, not a lot. No, that's not the one. Well, you have it here now on Opera Box Score. <laughs> Thank Surely you. one of your highest career honors that you've received <laughs> to this point. Without question. So you do interpolate this D, and uh, we were talking earlier today about your, I don't know, your your penchant for uh, interpolation, especially in Mozart. Can you tell us a little bit about working with Mark Minkowski and maybe working on these ornaments before you met Maestro Minkowski? Yeah, so I love ornamentation. I find it so engaging, so fun. And uh, it can really lighten up a difficult passage or it can do something to um, word paint. I mean, you can. there's so much in ornamentation. I know it's a little bit controversial in that some people are really against it. Even people, some people are very against appoggiaturas, which are like the, you know, the most basic form of ornamentation. But... Um, I don't know. I love it. I'm so into it. I came kind of from a jazz background. So when I found that you were allowed occasionally to uh, ornament Mozart, I became really excited. But uh, sometimes a conductor isn't into it and they want you to be really conservative. Luckily, Mark Binkowski in this context, he was so into it. I mean, he was so into it. For a while, I thought, no, this D is too much. I'm not going to do it. It's like, 
I'm trying too hard or something. I, I don't know. Why am I doing this? And he was like, no, you have to do it. And the director also said, team D all the way. And I had all these people behind me hoping that it would go well. So I did it. I added this D. Actually, this specific way of doing it, because I had been working on it without going up stepwise, just leaping directly to the D. And I talked to Christine Gerke about it over lunch in London, and she said, As one does. Do a little scale. <laughs> I know, if you're lucky, she's the coolest person in the world. But, um, yeah, she suggested to go up to a stepwise, and so I, I did it that way. So it really belongs to her, that one. But mm. I'm most grateful. It was a it was a great time. Well, you're doing, you know, Vitalia and Donna Anna and, um, you know, Countess. Where do you go from here? I mean, like, there's something on your website that I love so much. There's the word um, Jugendlich Dramatisches Fach, you know, uh, and you talk <laughs> about, like, singing the blonde Wagner roles. Um, I think, you know, I'm so excited to see what path you want to take with what your voice is giving right now. I mean, like, you sound amazing in Strauss, and I haven't heard your Wagner yet, but I'm crazy about your Mozart and new love ornamentation. So to me, like, you know, Handel would seem like a great option for you, but um, I'm curious to see what you think. Yeah, I mean, I would love to. It's funny, it's, the planets have to align in order for a project to work out. And luckily, I have one, I can't say where, but I'm going to do Alcina at least once, but that's coming up. I'm very excited about it. Um, one time I was listening to a Renee Fleming recording of Alcina, I want to say it's in the Naxos label. And I was walking down the street listening to Amnukor, and I had to stop walking. Like, I couldn't even, I had to just focus fully <laughs> on it. And I, it was, I was moved to tears listening to this recording, just walking down the street. So I'm so excited to, to mess around with that music, to really um, put it in my musical language. I'm, so, I'm just really excited about it. I also have made a kind of a career trajectory shift in the last year. I switched management, and I started singing some Verdi, which is, my heart beats for Verdi. So I did uh, Trovatore. I did Bethel Sicilian. Actually, that was almost on accident. Somebody else canceled. I had one week to prepare the role before the rehearsals began. And so when my manager approached me about it, I said, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I don't hate myself enough to go through the stress. But he somehow convinced me to sing through the aria. Actually, I listened to it on Apple Music. Oh, no, no, no. What is it? The... I could only hear it in Italian. No, I know. It's only because the end. And I listened to it, and I fell in love. I was like, oh, gosh, if I can sing this before I die, that's all I want. <laughs> so I learned the role in one week, and then I've now performed in three different um, runs at the Bayerische Staatsoper, where I was a couple of weeks ago. And by the way, I saw the final rehearsal of that Othello with Jonas Kaufmann and Gerald Finley, and it's amazing. Everyone should log in and give it a look. It's it's a really, it's really impressive singing across the board. Well, Every small role even has this great singing in it. It's a, it's a great thing. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. We're talking with American soprano Rachel Willis Sorensen. Um, hi, Rachel. This is Toby. So um, I just want to ask hi, you. Hi, Toby. Great to meet you, and thank you for being on the show. I'm kind of the uh, smartass here that just chimes in every once in a while, so... Bear with me. Um, but you're talking about career trajectory, and I'm just curious. Um, I want to know a little bit about doing two productions of the same show simultaneously, which you're going to be doing later this month. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of challenge that is? Obviously, the music is the same, which is nice, and I'm talking about Fledermouse and singing Rosalinda. But, um, and then later on, you're going to be going back into Donana, obviously a role you're intimately familiar with. But the follow-up mm -hmm. question to doing two productions at once um, and having them be different and how, what that challenge is is, when do you start putting your next role into your practice routine and into your voice to make sure that you're ready to go once rehearsal starts? Well, I've never done two productions of the same show at the same time before. We'll see. <laughs> Maybe it will be a disaster. I, hopefully, I, I doubt that it will because one is the semi-staged and the other is a full-on production. The semi-staged one doesn't even have spoken dialogues. And actually, it's with Jonas Kaufmann, who is so exciting. Um, I'm such a fan. Yeah, um, but I think in this case it should be okay. I'll, I get to, it's in a slightly different order and the cuts are a little bit different, so that might pose a challenge. I think it's just going to take a lot of focus to work on two different versions of the same show and mm -hmm. hopefully it doesn't go up in flames. <laughs> or just say, you know what? Hey, I'm doing two. You guys are only getting the one that I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is my role. Yeah. <laughs> this is what you're getting tonight. Uh, All right. So in preparation for this interview, I was just searching around the internets, as one does, 
And I came across this video that you made in 2012 for Bingham Young University, where you did your undergrad and your master's. Mm -hmm. And I want people to see this video because you seem like such a different person in that video. Not that I don't, I mean, I don't know you, but I mean, just from the Royal Opera House video and like that green space thing you did with WQXR where you're singing like Fruiting Spire and like eating the head of a lion or something like that. Like you're, <laughs> you're so like formidable in your performances that are documented for us all to see. But this 2012 video that you made, you're like doing a confessional, like a, you know, like it's some kind of a reality show and talking about, you know, being, I don't want to say awkward, but I mean, it's sort of about being awkward and like finding, finding yourself in opera. Can you talk a little bit about that time in your life? Yeah. Well, I think opera is a funny place where a lot of misfits can fit in. I mean, maybe that's what it promises. I feel like people with, I mean, listening to Placido Domingo when I was, I don't know, maybe 20, I, I had this recording. I just remember listening to him singing Dinus Mein Ganzes Half and also watching a DVD of him singing Lohengrin. And I thought, my gosh, like he has so much passion. He has so much, he's such a huge personality and such a huge voice, such a huge love for the music, obviously, in his performance. I thought, man, is there a place where people with that amount of passion can actually belong? Where people that are that big are proportionate to their surroundings rather than too big? And I'm like, my gosh, what a beautiful idea. And I think it is. I think his voice is the promise for me that big voices belong somewhere, big people, big personalities, larger than life. Because that's what an opera is. Ultimately, I see now it also has a ton of finesse, but that's also found within every person, you know, even people with big personalities. I don't know. So I just went through my own phase of feeling like a misfit, like I didn't belong anywhere. I remember. <laughs> I sang in choir so many times. I could not balance with the choir. It's just, I was too loud, too individual, too vibrato. I don't know. I didn't want to sing straight tone. I didn't want to sing low alto. I mean, I'm a soprano, so it's just funny. I, I never really, and I really felt like I was understood. I sang a lot of musicals in high school and had to do like one of three parts, old, ugly, or rejected by men. It wasn't just musicals, also straight theater. This was my type somehow, and I'm going, why am I relegated to the sidelines somehow? Like, I'll never, why am I not a, I have so much passion, why can't I be a leading lady? And then somehow I found opera. I didn't start studying until I was about nearly 17. And the teacher I had, which was Elaine Schipperell Burgess, I hope she's listening from Rhode Island where she lives. Anyway, um, that was in Washington State. And she would give me these recordings. And suddenly I went from listening, like conceptualizing opera as like Charlotte Church and Josh Groban, who are great. You know, they're doing great things or they did great, whatever. But then I was listening to Joan Sutherland, Kirti Kanawa, um, Anna Mosul, and I just, I was like, whoa, what is this? Actually, I fell in love with color song singing and I thought, how impressive that what they're able to do. And this is like the fulfillment of the potential of the human voice. And I just fell totally in love with it. And then to find out that I get to do it myself is, probably the greatest, most exciting discovery of my life. If I was going to high school with you, I would have been your best gay, and you would have not felt like a misfit. <laughs> we would have been misfits together, but let me tell you right yeah. now, I, I totally recognize maybe how you felt, uh, you know, before you became the Rachel Willis Orson. It's like, ugh, if I would have been there to support you back then, man. Um, oh, but anyway, can you stick around for a second? We have this next segment coming up that uh, we're going to read uh, Simon Rattle's list of advice uh, to young musicians, which is a really cool topic that came up this week. And uh, after we take a little PSA break, uh, can we talk to you a little bit about advice you might have gotten uh, in the early stages of your career? Yes, I'd love to. Okay, so we'll be back in like 45 seconds or so. Fantastic. So after the break, more from soprano Rachel Willis Sorensen. Sounds like she's going to maybe share some advice with us. That would be nice. Hey, it's Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera, 89.3 FM WNUR. Live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us tonight. George Cedarquist here along with Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and American soprano Rachel Willis Sorensen. You keep saying American soprano, but she has this weird slash through her name, like this O with a weird funny thing. Yeah, what's up with the slash, Rachel? (laughs) (laughs) It's actually it's actually pronounced Johnson and it is from my Danish husband. I'm more Danish than he is. It turns out we took that ancestry.com DNA test and he's only forty five percent Scandinavian and I am fifty (laughs) percent. But he grew up there, and I did not. Alas. Did you find any long-lost brothers or sisters that you didn't know you had? Um, I haven't really looked through, but you're right. There's this weird thing. Like, it shows you the people you're related to. Oh, it's and insane, Rachel. Have it's in- that? Oh, like, I found people that are, like, I'm closely related to, and I had no idea they existed. <laughs> no, my closest relative is, like, fourth cousin on there. I don't know why. Well, we're all jealous of, of you having a, a diacritical and a double-decker last name. I think that's the way to Thank go these you. days. Yeah, You won the oh, last name lottery. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, George? Sir? Oh, so shortly after we after Rachel gets off the phone, we're going to talk about this um, BBC uh, article about Simon, R- Simon Rattle giving advice to young musicians. But uh, when Rachel and I were talking earlier today, uh, we were talking about some advice you might have gotten, and you can feel free to name who gave you the advice. But I think it's important for here people to hear, you know, so part of your journey and advice that you took to heart that has maybe helped you get to where you are now. Okay. Well, the first thing I would say is when I did Operalia, I went to a press conference, and Placido Domingo was asked. Um, it was all about Operalia, but then they opened it up for questions. So clearly, they only wanted to know about him because he's a legend. Um, but someone asked him, what's the secret to your longevity? And he said simply, as long as I enjoy singing and I can sing and the audience wants me to sing, I don't see why I shouldn't sing. <laughs> that was it. And I thought, whoa, that's weirdly profound, actually. I mean, it's such a gift. Singing is such a gift. And I really enjoy singing. And I thought, how many times have I let an opportunity go when I should have enjoyed singing, but I was so worried about what how I was being received, that I tortured myself and I thought, oh my gosh, they're hating me. I'm such a failure. I'm such a fraud. I mean, these wicked little thoughts that can rob you of your joy. Mm. I mean, that's a tragedy because every time you sing, it's a gift. So I wish that I had known that. But the minute I started thinking about it that way, um, I got much, much better feedback. Also, I just let myself be whatever it is that I am. I mean, who knows, right? Each person has something unique to offer. And the whole schematic about being a young artist and being maybe trained to death and having the, the native element in you that lured you to it in the first place sort of trained out of you, that's such a, it's just a tragedy. You need to make sure that you are true to yourself no matter what as a singer. And probably this is true in every field. It's just every person came as a whole being, and that deserves to be honored, and that will help with your artistry 100%. Another thing, maybe a little more shallow, but someone told me once that when she lost some weight, her whole career, like, shot upward, and um, she didn't even suggest that I do so. She just said that that had happened to her. And then I always thought that I was, like, safe from being asked to do things on stage I was uncomfortable with because I was overweight. But then someone asked me to do something I didn't want to do in spite of being overweight, and I said no, and they kept pushing for it until the point where I had to say, listen, I'm going to, you get, go ahead and get someone else. Like, I'm not going to do that. And then they're like, no, no, you don't have to do it. It was, it was a weird situation. But I've never been more motivated to lose weight because I thought, oh, no, no, this is the rest of that story. So my manager, in trying to get me out of it, told the company, she's a bigger girl. She's not going to want to do that thing. 
And I said, that's not the reason. And I realized, oh my gosh, my, my professional choices are limited by my appearance. I want to be able to have the autonomy to make artistic decisions based on, on how I feel, not based on what I look like. So weirdly, that was such a good motivator to lose weight. And I started working with a health coach and I lost a bunch of weight. And I will say, I agree with that other piece of advice that the healthier you can be, um, the better. And it helped my singing. And it definitely, I mean, maybe unfortunately, I don't know, but it helped every other part of my career as well. Well, from your best gay, you look amazing. And I'm sure Thanks. you you looked Oliver. amazing your whole life, but um, you're definitely like you've become a diva and like in all the best ways, you know, and I want to see your Thank gowns you. and I love the way your hair is in that video and the black dress and like, it's everything. So <laughs> I'm, yeah, it's, it's so great to talk to you. And I really appreciate that you came on to tell us some about, about your career and that story That's just now. Um, it's also meaningful to us. And I'm sure the young listeners listening are going to take some, some of that and, and run with it. And um, guys, you want to say anything to her before she leaves? Rachel Willis Sorensen. Did I get that right? Sorensen, yeah. See, Oliver, I can pronounce foreign words, man. Get off my back. Just not Italian. She's singing at the Deutsche Oper Berlin in the Zemperoper Dresden later this month. She's on Twitter at R-W-S-I-N-G, R-W-Sing. And there's a link to her website on our website, operaboxstore.com. Last thing, you're doing something for Christmas. You're doing this, like, 12 Days of Advent on Facebook or something like that. Instagram. I'm not sure if it's going up on Twitter. I'll have to look into that. But I just recorded some tips and tunes. So I'm singing some fun Christmas carols with ukulele and sometimes uh, like a quartet with myself. And then I give some tips for singers or anyone interested. Yeah. So like <laughs> Rachel Wills, Sorensen's. And on Facebook. It's on Facebook, too. On Facebook. Yeah, okay. so like like Rachel Willis Sorensen's professional Facebook page, and you'll see her adorable videos playing a ukulele. What could be better? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That's what you're listening to. 89.3 FM WNUR is the station. George Cedarquist here along with Oliver Camacho and Tobias Wright. We are here. So I, I don't know if you guys watch Stranger Things. No. Oh, do you? Oh, I don't watch TV, watch TV, dude. Yeah, you okay. kidding me? I got, got no well, time for no TV. The whole time I was thinking Barb, Stranger Things. So if anybody knows what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. So if, if to- Toby's got a blank look in his yeah. eyes. I, I don't, I can't, I don't yeah. even know what a television is. Yeah. <laughs> so Simon Rattle. Sir Simon Rattle. Sir Simon Rattle. I saw him conduct when I was a teenager when he was in Birmingham at the Birmingham Symphony. And those curls, you would never forget that curly hair that he so had. Beautiful. Yeah. So beautiful. So uh, the BBC Music website um, has a, a really nice article that uh, I've seen circulated a lot in my circle uh, on Facebook. Seven essential pieces of advice for young musicians. And let's just go down them. Um, the first one, music may be your passion, but relationships deserve just as much as hard work. Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. I mean, what is life if it's not about people and relationships? And mm. especially in the music business, especially in opera, which I would argue is the most collaborative performing art form, perhaps the most collaborative art form, period, it's all about people, and it's mm-hmm. all about relationships. And if you don't have that, you don't have anything. Well, it's in, I think it talks about this later in the article, but you talk about relationships, and it's such an odd... I never really think, ah, oh, this sounds so stupid and cliche, but whenever I'm doing a show, I don't think, this is my job, these are my coworkers. They're your colleagues, and they're the people that you end up living with, and you share your meals with, and you. it's such a vulnerable thing to sing that, yeah, you form incredible... Um, incredibly deep relationships with people in such a short amount of time when you're doing a show. So, and it really teaches but you how to grow with people. I think he's also talking about a life-work balance, yeah, and about the importance of maintaining, you know, your foundation, your your primary relationships because you need them, you know, as a support system. Uh, but also, it's what you bring those relationships that you form with other people, good or bad, you know, that's what you bring to the stage. Mm-hmm. Well, the second point he says is everyone messes up at some point. It's how you deal with it that matters. I mean, that's absolutely true. I would say, you know, we all make mistakes. It's, it's not about making mistakes. It, the problem is, is when you make the same mistake twice. I've definitely messed up multiple times in my career. Bad ideas, good ideas, badly 
instructed or directed good people mistreated that goes to point one and so how are you going to deal with adversity i mean it's not unlike sports really well i mean (laughs) i hate to talk about the chiefs too much but one of the great things about patrick mahomes patrick mahomes is a quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, for those who you don't, don't know. have to talk down to me, I'm not. <laughs> She's anyway, looking right at me. <laughs> no, but but one of the things that is so unique about his talent is they say that he really doesn't make the same mistake twice, um, and that's not because he's you know clairvoyant or knows you know that type of thing. It's because when a mistake happens, it's really about going back, assessing it, acknowledging how you got to that mistake, and then making a plan to never do it again. And I think the same can be said for my own from my own experience. It's in auditions. There are so many times that I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something totally different this time. And it totally failed me. Um, and part of that is because I got away from what I had practiced. And I don't know. I mean, that's a mistake, you know, to not. You can plan and you can be confident in your plan sometimes. Mm. Number three, don't be afraid to show a little vulnerability. You know what? This video that I talked about with Rachel Sorensen, Rachel Willis Sorensen. Sorensen. Um, it's so vulnerable, and I really do hope that you'll seek it. Maybe we'll put the link on our website. Uh, but it's from 2012, and she was doing like this alumni interview for Brigham Young University. And she really does talk about, you know, like, like she said to us, like feeling like a misfit, you know, and feeling that she was the wrong size for things, you know. And opera just because it's so large that she fit, you know. And she's this amazing personality on stage. I mean, if you look up her YouTube videos, look at this green space video that she did for WQXR where she's singing Fruling's Fire, the Strauss song. It's just so huge. And you need somebody like to just in- inhabit those songs because they're, they're gigantic songs, you know? Mm-hmm. The question of vulnerability is interesting. I, I, this is one I did not agree with. And as the director, so our task is to lead a team of people all of whom know far more about their individual area of expertise than we do. And sometimes when if you show vulnerability, that is problematic in a leader because people don't think you know what you're talking about. They don't think you have a purpose, a direction, an mm-hmm. idea, a plan. And then everybody starts to run to panic stations. The flip side of that is that what we're trying to do as artists is reveal the problems that we're wrestling with and that we're using art and we're having a conversation with the audience about what they're wrestling with as well. And that requires vulnerability. I guess I kind of agree with George. I, and yeah. that I, I guess if a director came to me and didn't, <laughs> I'd be like, I don't want to know that you're vulnerable. I need you to direct me, right? Exactly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that. Like, I mean, I have been intimidated by directors and conductors before and I think it would have taken the, you know, the the pressure out of the room if they just showed a little more humanity sometimes. I guess. I'm going to say something. Yeah. My, my computer just died, so you have to... Do you want to share my iPad? Yes. Um, Go on. Say I, something. I would, well, what I was going to say is that I, it would make me feel better if a conductor, more so than a director, showed vulnerability. Okay. In my own experience. Well, and certainly as, as a singer, like, look, you got to have a life to portray one on stage. And so there's nothing wrong with singers having those moments of vulnerability and, and being able to, to tap into those. His fourth point, he says, being an amazing musician doesn't make you an amazing grown-up. Man, boy, is that true. I've said this on this show many times before. I don't know. What did, what did he say here? Um, da, 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 I left the Royal Academy. It's possible to have absolutely no practical knowledge of what goes on in the world. A lot of musicians leave college without knowing very, very important things. And he talks about health insurance and somebody showing up to collect thousands of pounds or arrest him. I will say I wish universities, and maybe there are universities that do. I know that the degrees that I have, at no point did anyone teach me how to run my own business as a musician. Um, and furthermore, I like nobody teaches you how to file your taxes as a musician. Yep. Nobody teaches you how to file quarterly. Nobody teaches you, you know, how to do deduction. It's crazy the things that we don't get to learn um, in our extensive training to become classical musicians. I guess I'm a little bitter. Am I crazy with that, though? <laughs> I think that's a theme today. For me? Yeah. 
You were talking about audition season, stuff like that. Well, that wasn't on air. (laughs) That was privately, Oliver. You you were vulnerable, buddy. I was was being vulnerable. vulnerable. Now you're just telling everybody. (laughs) Our heartthrob lyric tenor can't get jobs. (laughs) Some some of these other points, they're not really applicable, right? He says, even world-famous musicians have identity crises. Number six, the bonds you make with fellow musicians will be intense. But let me get to number seven. Wait, 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 wait. That's that's I mean that's not really advice, but it, they, that is a really true thing. Like you do a show with somebody, mm-hmm. and that person becomes like your friend, like for life. Like some of my strongest relationships are people that I was in shows. Yeah, with. that's what I'm saying. He yeah. says it's, he says it's intense. He doesn't say it's a friendship. He no. says the uh, bonds you make with fellow musicians will be intense. I, I read that two ways. That uh, what's like, the first way? The in, the in, there's this intense way of like. We don't get along. We really don't get along. We still have to do this show, or we still have to do this collaboration. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's your perspective. I don't think that's what he was trying to say. I don't think so either, George. I think that says more about you than it says about. But that's what I was else, saying so. to the first point with the relationships: is that you like really, it happens in a vacuum, and you're like, wham! I know everything about you because everything yeah. we do in this condensed amount of time, this is it. Yeah. We're yeah. here for this rehearsal process, these rehearsals. And we're going to do everything. You know, Oliver, these. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I agree with you. Jeez. Uh, oh, God. But here's here's the thing that as a director, like, I, you know what? I don't want to know about singers' personal lives and what's going on with them. That, that to me, gets in the way of us, of us doing the work. I step out of the room for all the personal interactions between the singers because that's not my business. They need it. Huh. In the cast, you want those relationships. It's to interesting happen. to be you talking about this with that. the director. But as a director, man, I just I just want to so go where, home and have George, a beer. George, you're so, you're so cold hearted. No, but that's no. Where, where is the community of directors, and when do you feel like you're amongst your people? Real, to be honest, my people are the designers. That's when I'm at home. Is when I'm talking to my designers. Hmm. When you're talking to your designers, you're my the designers that I'm working with okay. that are on my particular team okay. for that show. Interesting, George, because so I know you to have such a soft heart and be such a great dad. So when you guys are when you're then, like away from home and like you have like a six week project, whatever, and like it's time, like rehearsals are over, you retreat to the production team and you guys like ha- throw back some. Well, I I would if the production team is around. Of course, the 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 horrible part about it is that you design the show months before rehearsals. Yeah. The team only returns to the theater for the week of tech. So this is why directing is a lonely profession. Mm is because there is no one for you to talk to. There is no one for you to be around hmm. for the bulk of the rehearsal process. the violin for that one. So, <laughs> the, the sad trombone. <laughs> Number seven, he says, the secret to success, work like hell, stay curious, and realize that people around you are actually much nicer than you think they might be. I feel about it, Oliver. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not very nice. What's, wow. what's your advice? If you had one piece of advice, Oliver, one piece of oh, advice, man, Toby, you that, you, that you would share. Well, if we're going to stay, do you want me to be bitter or <laughs> optimistic? I'm kidding. I'm, Go ahead. I mean, I, I'll say this. Like, now that I'm of a certain age, I mean, I started doing this podcast talking about opera publicly for over 10 years ago. I realized that people are really trying to do their best. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't help to give criticism that they can't do anything with, you know? It doesn't help to be mean, you know? And so when I read now, like, mean reviews of stuff that's just mean to show off how smart the person doing the reviewing is and not really helpful to anybody, you know? That, I think I'll like that's... I, you know what? It's crazy because I don't know that this is advice, but to that end, one of the, my least favorite things about young artist programs is how patronizing they, they can become, especially in an audition setting, especially when you're offered feedback that maybe you don't necessarily want. Because, and Rachel talked about this early in one of her interviews, uh, in Apogeturas, a, a right? Yeah. People have these crazy opinions. Well, there should be a Apogeturas when you're doing Mozart. There should be. Yeah. It was meant to be spur of the moment. How did the text fit into the yeah. voice? Those types of things should happen. And there are only, there's so many people, there's only so many ways that you can, that you can sing, you know, Musetta. You can bring a lot to the character, but the music is always still the same, right? And, the criticism there strips away the identities, I feel like, of young singers. And so it's all these cookie cutter, you have to do it this way, you were told to do it this way, you were coached to do it this way. Where's your own idea? And I wish that we encouraged more for younger singers to make their own artistic ideas that are obviously based in, you know, an educational foundation, yeah. right? I, I would say, like, I'm crazy about historically informed performance, but yes. I, w- I would say to young musicians, young singers, be curious about other 
types of music and be curious about other instruments. Like go to like a violin recital or go hear, you know, a symphonic concert, chamber music concert to see how other people phrase without words mm -hmm. uh, and be curious about the history of what you are performing. Like just look into it, see who sang this, see how they did it, listen to recordings, you know, um, listen to other interpretations and things you disagree with, you know, just be curious and, yeah. and take, get all the information you can that you can create your own. And if you, soon. if you love singing and you think you love singing opera, take the time to learn about this art form because it's hundreds and hundreds of years old and you're not an expert when you graduate with a master's degree and you hardly know what performance practice is. And we only have recordings dating back to 1915, you know, when Caruso started recording stuff. So it's find as much as you can and learn as much as you can and let that inform your opinions on things, not just what you think your passion is. Here's my piece of advice. One of the many pieces of advice I have. Always tell the truth. Whether you're a singing actor on stage, in the moment, all we want as an audience is to see the truth. If you are putting your resume together, tell the truth. If you are giving feedback to somebody as a director, tell the truth. If you're working with the administration, tell the truth. Always tell the truth. It's the easiest thing to remember is the way David Mamet, one of my, not a mentor because I've never met him, but certainly a big influence in my life. That was his big piece of advice. Well, Simon Rattle's seven advices <laughs> for mm -hmm. young people will be, the link to that will be on our website, I assume, George? That's right. Yep. Operaboxscore.com. An unusual take on Manati's Christmas classic, Amal the Night Visitors. It's America's talk radio show about opera on WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendantin Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for everything you need to know that happened in Operaland over the past week. On-site opera's production of Minotti's nativity opera, Amal the Night Visitors, will be presented in the Holy Apostles Soup Kitchen in Chelsea in New York City, featuring professional musicians and vocalists alongside a chorus made up of people who have experienced homelessness and who now live at the 43rd Street site of Breaking Ground, the city's largest provider of permanent supportive housing for the homeless. When it opens tomorrow night, the new production of Verdi's La Traviata will be the first opera Yannick Nézé-Séguin has conducted as the Metropolitan Opera's new music director. Soprano Diana Damro plays the title role. Bard College has announced the appointment of mezzo-soprano Stephanie Blythe as artistic director of the Conservatory of Music Graduate Vocal Arts program. That starts in July for her. She takes over from current program director and founder soprano Dawn Upshaw. Kadita Matsila tweeted that she will sing in Wagner's Tristan Unisolda. The Finnish soprano said, quote, I love it. I love these imaginative thoughts. I completely had an awakening with Ring in San Fran last summer, meaning Wagner. The complicated relationship was over in a heartbeat after seeing first Siegfried, first Gutter Demerung live. Signed in for my first Isolda. Yeah. End quote. No word on where or when she's going to perform the opera, but it would be her latest Wagner role after having made her role debut as Zieglinda in Die Valkyrie. Looks like a typical pop-up shop. Spare but cool neon signs, bare whitewashed walls, table up front for sales. But the offerings at this temporary storefront in the heart of Manhattan are musical, the music of J.S. Bach. 
Inside the shop, a Juilliard-trained pianist, Evan Shinners, is playing five hours of Bach each and every day. He calls it the Bach Store. And on this day, 1954, it was the premiere of William Walton's Troilus and Cressida, the birthday of Slovenian mezzo-soprano Maranja Lipovzek, American baritone Frank Walguera, and soprano Phyllis Curtin, as well as composer Anton Webern, that one's for Weston. And also on this day, 1873, the New York Oratorio Society gave its first concert. We're assuming it was Handel's Messiah. And in 1906, Oscar Hammerstein opened the Manhattan Opera House with a performance of Bellini's Ipoditani. That's your two-minute drill. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Thanks for keeping it cool with us. On upper box cool you got to go way lower, Barry White, if you're going to... I can't do that. No, that's dreadful. I'm going to get Norman here. I'm just a lonely tenor. <laughs> I did like that little beat, though, that we had there. That was good. Um, Where to begin on this? I think we're going to talk about La Traviata at the Metropolitan Opera. Do it, man. Well, I just... I mean, I think it's, it's a really nice article talking about, you know, Yannick Nizes again, stepping in finally in his role, not just as like a guest, but really doing it. And he's doing an opera that everybody loves and knows well. And he's starting to, like, draw some boundaries. Like, I'm taking some of this back. Like, we're going to put this intermission back in, which has always been in, you know, Mm -hmm. after the second act. Two intermissions. Sorry. If you want a shorter night at the opera, you know, go somewhere else. Well, Traviata is not even a long opera anyway. I know. Adding that intermission does not make it some, like, four-and-a-half-hour adventure. It's, like, it's still a a two-and-a-half-hour opera. Like, it's not long. Yeah. And that intermission makes sense. Yeah, it does. Because uh, Act Two is just, it's so dramatic, and you you need time to like mm-hmm. give the singers a chance to like gather themselves, and for the soprano to like put on some eye makeup that makes her look like she's dying. Like that. <laughs> well, and like it talked about when he reeled this in in the rehearsal was when uh, Violetta, after singing, um, well, it's an Act One, Sempre Libera, yeah. but she she throws a, a champagne glass, a champagne flute, and it yeah. shatters. Yeah. I mean, that's not necessary. Verdi well, didn't write that in the score. Right. Well, he it, wanted, this is beautiful, he wanted that noise to not happen while the music is playing. He said, like, let the music be the, be yeah, the sound. Yeah, exactly. And also, throw it upstage. <laughs> yeah. And also throw it upstage. So, for me in particular, I I love that idea with Verdi, especially because you know that one of the places that I've sung is at Sarasota, where they do Verdi and they, it's it has to be as Verdi intended. And so, for me, I kind of have this thing where when I listen to this type of music, I really want the music to be the focus, and I don't need it to happen in Las Vegas, yeah. even though they're kind of they're, you know, those productions are going to happen. But I kind of like the fact that it's going to be taking well, it sure back to the music because that's what the Metropolitan Opera is there for is for the music. I'm right? sure that's ruffling George's feathers. It is, man. There's feathers <laughs> all over the studio here. Look, I I think this is a boring choice. I I. Looking at the photos here, I, I think this is a boring production, and um, I don't you think you haven't this... even seen it. I'm looking <laughs> at the you, photos you right here on the article, boring, man. So, okay. I I just I, 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 that... I question this start. To it be looked... honest with you, uh, we're talking about the music, though. I guess I did like the the set looks pretty with like the Victorian like pretty. No, man, we're not looking it's... for pretty. Okay. What did you... Okay. To me, what it's saying is that this is an opera that everybody loves and that audiences want to want to hear and want to see. I'm going to make it so that when they sit down and they see this traditional production, that the music is top-notch, the singers are great. Boom. And And here I am two years early from my appointment. And it's music-making the way I want to do it. All right, we're moving on. Okay, so um, (laughs) the Carita Matula thing, just briefly, just because you might be curious as to why I wanted that included in this rundown. Because she's... Crazy, and this that tweet made absolutely no sense. Well, it made me want to start getting more tweets and having George read them. It made me yeah. want to look at less tweets. Yeah, well, I would just say that Carita Matio, the trajectory of her career, it's a surprise to a lot of us that she's taking on a, such a difficult, difficult, difficult role in uh, when we already have, have seen her move into Comper Mario character roles. The, the Twilight years, if you will. Yeah. And she's a, a super interesting singer. She always has been. She's such a great actress, and she does something with with every role that she she takes on. But this seems to be uh, a Herculean task at this point in her career. So. You know, the one thing I'll say for her is she is brave. 
Yeah. She is so brave, right? She just did the world premiere of the Rufus Wainwright piece, Hadrian, at Canadian Opera Company. She's doing um, uh, Yanufa at the Bayerische Staatsoper. She is, she doesn't do anything by halves, man. Like, she goes for it. She really, really goes for it. Is this going to blow up in her face? We'll see. So, um, Among the Night Visitors, that's an opera that's near and dear to you, George. You want to talk about what it'd be like? Ah, uh, yes. When I was a little boy soprano, I, I thrilled in the role of Amal. I, I can't stand this piece. I really can't. Aww. But um, I, I have to hand it to... Onside Opera. Onside yeah. Opera. Eric Einhorn, he's an old colleague and friend of mine, full disclosure. Onside Opera is one of those storefront opera companies. It's it's bigger than a storefront opera company that just does everything right. It's so thought through. Yeah. It's so beautifully apportioned and measured and no corners are cut. This is what Eric said about about this idea. He said um really who they were, they meaning the homeless that are part of this production. He says, really, who they were and whatever their experience of homelessness is, is secondary to them being here and doing this project with us. He goes on in this quote to say, I said last week to them, I want people to see you beyond your housing status. Yeah. So I so smart. I think this is a really sweet story because Amal and I Visitors is not a super complicated opera to put together. A lot of community opera companies, churches even can put it together. And I think there is something really meaningful about being on stage and having people applaud for you. Like we all know what it feels like even to sing in a chorus and to have people really receive it wonderfully. I think it can, it can inspire some of those people. I don't know Mm -hmm. them. Maybe they don't care, but I think just to be a part of music, to sing in a chorus, I think it's, that's really lovely thing to do. And especially at that particular time of the year. Yeah. And we have this thing about refugees going on and like, yes. And to George's point, and not cutting any corners. You know, I was reading this article and I was like, ah, this is a little hokey. This is a little too much like the people who use the the inmates in the jail in Iowa for for their chorus. And then it got to the point where they said, you know, this isn't a nonprofit trying to do a thing to pat themselves on the back and get publicity. There's a stipend. These are paid singers. They right. made this a professional venture. Um, and then they're going to hopefully foster and continue to have a, a, a beneficial relationship for both the opera company and then the home moving forward. And I thought that that was, I mean, everything that I was worried about as I was reading was all answered at the end of the article. And I was like, holy cow, what a fantastic. Well, and so they partnered with Breaking Ground, Breaking which, Ground. Yeah, which uh, is in this, the 43rd Street building in Manhattan, which houses low income and, and the, the homeless. And just everything makes sense. Everything is so thought through. Mm-hmm. This is something I would genuinely like to see. Yeah. I would, not just the production, I would like to be part of the process on this and just see how all these humans are working together to tell this story and to make art. So we have a little bit of time before we wrap up the show. I just want to let people know that I went to see uh, Anna Dutrapko's recital called Day and Tell me about it, girl. Okay, so it's going to be coming to, I think, Carnegie Hall or something like that in New York next weekend. So for those, this is a little preview for you. It's a recital uh, in which Anna Dutrapko has a program, and uh, Anna Dutrapko and Malcolm Martin have a program that's divided into two halves. One is the day and one is the night. And it's a poopery, it's a hodgepodge of like mostly Russian art song, which are beautifully sung, and then some things that come as a real surprise. Some arias, of course, are stuck in there. And some of it is just exquisite, and maybe it's the best that can be performed uh, right now. And some of that is pure camp. And she <laughs> she is... Wait, deep- wait, you're, you're saying she does camp? It's She is a diva in the, really the best sense of the word in this case, because it's all about her. And, um, you know, she does some stage antics, which you would never see in like a traditional recital, like Dietrich Fischer Discal or like Crystal Love, you never imagine them doing some of the stuff that she does, but she makes it work. She sells it. Can I ask for an example? Yeah, that would be helpful. Um, paint me a picture. Okay. So she sings, uh, then the second half she sings, uh, you know, songs about night. And, um, there's this one Russian song, I forget who it's probably by Tchaikovsky or something like that. That's about a star. And she comes out on stage. She's holding a, a mylar silver balloon. Yes. And she lets go of the balloon in the middle of the song at the you know at the right moment you know like time gesture you know, 
And it's so hokey. Like, who comes out with a balloon? (laughs) (laughs) But I love that. Yeah. And she, you know, she sings Strauss's Morgan with a violinist, which is beautiful. One of my favorites. Yeah. And she, like, waves the violinist on. And then she, like, waves the violinist off. And, like, I felt so bad for this violinist. He's a concertmaster of Lyric Opera Orchestra. And I don't know if they had a chance to rehearse or whatnot. But, like, she, like, basically walks up to him and sings this song to him you know and he's playing his heart out you know mm-hmm. and like she's there like staring him down like it's it's so awkward it's amazing to watch it but it's so awkward and bizarre Wait, i kind of so. love that <laughs> yeah uh, his check doesn't bounce it's all good he can do whatever <laughs> so she has a sense of humor is what you're saying yes yeah and she's she brings a lot as, as as the gays would say she's very extra in this recital but she sounds great i have to say like you know she's at the peak of her vocal ability right she now. sounded fantastic the last like two years everything yeah. that she's done it's been fun uh did the audience love it yeah of course like half of russia was, <laughs> was like, russian was, mafia I, man yeah. yeah seriously all right let's wrap the show up good call bad call on opera box score Thanks for hanging out with us tonight, everybody. George Cedarquist with Oliver Camacho and Tobias Wright on Opera Box Score. Who has a good call? Who's got a bad call this week? Um, well, I'll just give a little shout-out to Thompson Street Opera Company here in Chicago. They're a storefront opera company. I think they're now in their third season. Um, they put on a show called When Adonis Calls. Um, Kathy mentioned it last week. It's a relatively new work. Uh, that's for two singers and two dancers, and we we had a chamber ensemble uh, conducted by Alex Enyart, a friend of the show. And I have to say that this show is great for the gay community, and I want to congratulate Thompson Street Opera for finding the right venue, uh, a place in Chicago called Pride Arts and Films, I think it's called, or Pride Plays and Films. Um, it's a, a gay-themed theater, and they do very small, small works, but um, this is a chamber opera for sure. Jonathan Wilson who uh, I praised when he was singing in As One last year. He is phenomenal on this thing. And it's it's a very lyrical, tonal, it doesn't feel super out there type of compositional language. Um, and he just sings his heart out in this thing. And it's so, so good. And like they've sort of marketed it as like, oh, you're going to be titillated. You're going to see the baritones naked. And you do get to see them naked, but it's not enough. <laughs> but but that's okay. I was gonna say you don't get full frontal, do you? You do, but it's so short that it's like, oh, come on, just like wait, the- what's so short? <laughs> the other baritone uh, is <laughs> new to Chicago. His name is Nathan James Kissler. A great Sorry. a great debut, youthful, attractive, great actor, very tender, sweet. Uh, but it's really Jonathan Wilson is singing like a god right now. So Tobias, right? Well, I have a toothache and I turned 30 this week, so life's going great. Audition fees. Oh, yeah. Bad call. Is that a bad call or a good call? It's, it's a good want. call because it's a community rallying together. So for those who don't know, young artist programs charge audition fees. They charge application fees. I can say speak for myself in that I spent hundreds of dollars in fees, not auditions, but in fees in the last several months, and it's um, there's a group going around on Facebook that's uh, signing a petition to it's change.org. Change.org. Yeah, so you can add your name to the petition of let's get these companies to stop, you know, really taking us to the cleaners. You know? Yeah, we'll I'm put, into we'll, that. We'll put the link on our website on the Good Call Bad Call page as well. That's Opera Box Score. And maybe we'll talk about this with Anthony Barese next week. Yeah, is Barese on the Barese. show? Barese next, yeah. next yes. week. Yeah. Um, my son for his uh, school Christmas concert has to learn a song in Italian, so I'm his Italian diction coach. Oh, oh gosh, gosh. <laughs> we're gonna have some. Pro- <laughs> He's gonna fail. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk. <laughs> Go away, you guys. America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics from operabass.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Just be sure to share and comment on our posts. And on Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. For co-host Tobias Wright and our guest Rachel willis Sorensen. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you're eating your way through way too many latkes. 
We're back on Monday, December 10 at 9 p.m. Central when conductor Anthony Barese joins us. And you're going to get more opera headlines and hot takes. Join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago Sound Experiment.